before we get started, a quick thank you to everyone who took part in our competition in the last episode. We'll announce the results at the end of this show, so stay tuned. Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs. This month, I'm in Port Vila, where I'll be talking to Pacific leaders and analysts about China's role in the Pacific. Louisa is in Hong Kong on book leave, but she'll be chipping in on this episode. As ever, we're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. Over the past couple of years, geopolitical tensions have been heating up as China increases its presence in the South Pacific. A host of other countries are suddenly rediscovering the importance of this region. The Australian government has announced it wants to step up. New Zealand has launched its Pacific reset, and even Great Britain is set to return, announcing it will reopen three embassies in Tonga, Samoa, and Vanuatu, where Britain once shared colonial power with France. The often unspoken motivation behind this flurry of activity is China's huge spike in trade and investment in everything from tourism to natural gas to raw logs. Including over two billion dollars in aid, with huge projects in the pipeline. There were even reports last year that China was looking to build a naval base in Luganville, the second largest town in Vanuatu. And if that weren't enough excitement, the last meeting of the Pacific Islands Forum, the peak regional body for Pacific Island leaders, saw the Chinese delegation shouting down the Pacific leaders and eventually storming out in protest at their treatment. To talk about what happened, I'm joined by Vanuatu's Foreign Minister Ralph Reganvanu and the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, Dame Meg Taylor.、Um, Dame Meg, you you were there in Nauru when there was that bust up.、Um, what was it all about?、Um, I think just to be clear, the、uh, Nauru, as chair of the Pacific Island Forum,、um, that's when all the leaders of the Pacific of the 18 members come together. The invitation was extended to those who would participate in the plenary at ministerial level, and the chair called on those of ministerial level to speak. And when he didn't call on the Chinese delegation,、uh, as he determined were not at ministerial level, then there was、um, an outburst by the. The ambassador, who said that if they were at ministerial level,、um, the chair used his position as chair to overrule that. And when、um, the prime minister of Tuvalu was given the floor and was shouted down, I think that was、uh, a situation where Pacific leaders just were very、uh, firm about the lack of decorum. Uh, in that meeting, and the、um, Chinese delegation left the room. Dame, media attention has focused on China's debt trap diplomacy、uh, in the Pacific, where countries turn over control of strategic assets such as ports to gain debt forgiveness. Now, most Pacific leaders have rejected this.、Um, do you think there's cause for concern around the indebtedness of some countries? What happened from、uh, Sri Lanka、uh, is the example that many of the donors use and say, "Don't don't fall into that trap." But the Prime Minister of Samoa has come out very clearly in his statement and said, "Look,
there seems to be a suggestion that we are naive about what we do. And his view is that leaders do know what they are doing. Um, does the issue go away? No, it doesn't go away. And I think that, uh, you know, from the Secretariat's point of view, some solid work on this would give some assistance and guidance. Minister, with this kind of overwhelming focus from the media on the debt trap diplomacy narrative, um, do you think there are other concerns uh, with China's engagement with Vanuatu that are possibly being missed in this? You know, the the main concern the government of Vanuatu has with uh, China or Chinese investment as opposed to Australian investment or New Zealand investment is uh, we need to ensure that uh, our laws are followed and enforced I think maybe it's because, uh, for example, investors from Australia and New Zealand, for the most part, come from a country in which there are laws that are enforced, uh, whereas, I don't know, but uh, Chinese investors seem to have a more lax attitude towards regulations, for example, environmental impact assessment requirements, that kind of thing. And so it's really up to us as the national government who's responsible for regulating investment in our country to make sure that uh, the laws and regulations apply equally to all. And sometimes uh, in Vanuatu, we are a country that uh, we have, you know, two official languages, English and French, plus the national language, Bislama. So we're used to investors who we can speak to in our national language. And a lot of the Chinese investors, it's very difficult to speak to them because a lot of them don't speak those languages. So it makes it a bit more difficult to engage with them in those kind of ways. But uh, we are rapidly building our Chinese-speaking workforce in the the administration. We're getting lots lots of students coming out with Chinese now. So we are trying to catch up to the situation so that we are in a position where we can make sure our laws apply equally across the board to everybody. Yeah, I I just want to make a comment about the pragmatism that uh, leaders in the Pacific apply to what is needed here from the Belt and Road. Uh, We need ports, we need roads, we need airfields. And if there is a donor that's going to supply that, what we do want is quality infrastructure so that it's not something that breaks down in two or three years and then we have to go back to the drawing board because that in itself creates debt. But debt is going to be around us all the time. It's not just in the economies here in the Pacific. I mean, you look at the debt ratios in the Caribbean, but that is exacerbated also. Um, it's from borrowings, but it's also particularly because of climatic impact. They have never have enough time to recover, and then you've got another storm that comes in. So the debt of recovery just continues and continues. Some countries have a, have a percentage of 120%. Now, in the Pacific, I think uh, one country has about 60%, which is the highest. And, and climate change, I guess, is one issue that China is quite open to um, to working with the Pacific on. Um, on a practical level, what sort of initiatives have you seen from the Chinese side on, on climate change? I think that if you look at the Pacific Rim countries, you've got to ask yourself who really is committed to the one issue or the most important issue that faces this region is climate change and the consequences of it. Not just the sea level rise, sea surges, tsunami, cyclones, but you've also got drought, water. All these aspects have tremendous impact on populations and it's it's very, very real. It's not as if a country can come in and do something physical. What they have to do is make sure that their emissions are down to 1.5 or even lower so that we can survive. But let's take, for example, Vanuatu. After Cyclone Pam loses 64% of its GDP, to recover after you've lost 64% of your GDP, your premium has to be pretty high. So what do you do about it? You invest up front. You look at how do you uh, build to withstand these 
climatic impacts. You refit your infrastructure. You look at the ports so that ships can get in there after you've had devastation. But you're investing up front all the way. And this is to ensure that we start taking care of ourselves. Um, Practically in terms of climate change, I think uh, China does provide a lot of solar lighting solutions. But that's not really a big part of the development assistance to Vanuatu. It's more, the development assistance is more infrastructure, especially here in Port Vila. You can't miss it, right? You can't miss all the Chinese buildings. I mean, more and more we are talking with China about all this infrastructure has to be climate proof, right? And I think uh, I'm seeing a change in uh, China's assistance to us. And really it's all about the local politicians, the leaders in the Pacific Island countries like myself and others, saying this is what we want, this is how we want this partnership to look like and, you know, just we, we need it urgently, give it to us, we'll accept any conditions. And, I mean, walking around Port Vila, you, you can't help but notice that the dominant contracting company is uh, CCECC. Have you had conversations with them to bring them on board with these new building codes? Because it seems they're building almost everything from the roads to the buildings to, you know, everything around town. We, we are having conversations with them and this is where, you know, the, the leadership is very important in the country because there are issues with corruption, of course, with, uh, especially in public works. So relationships between CCCC and politicians tend to sort of undermine some of the requirements for high standards. So it's really up to ourselves to set our governance measures right, our our systems in place so that we can start to make sure that it's consistent and political influence or connections becomes less important in terms of making sure that we meet the right standards we need to meet. I mean, thinking about those those new relationships or, or if you like, re-establishing relationships, uh, I think it was the Tongan Prime Minister that came out and said uh, music to Tongan's ears that Great Britain was coming back. I mean, is it music to Vanuatu's ears? And, and why do you think Great Britain is suddenly um, back in the Pacific? Well, we're very happy, of course, that uh, the UK is coming back to establish a mission in Vanuatu. We were very disappointed when they left. We thought they owed us being our former coloniser. They owed us to stay here and uh, help us to sort out some of the economic problems they'd set us up with. (laughs) But I think uh, England going back or the UK going back is not really any surprise considering Brexit. The reason they left was because they were saying now it's under the European Union, you have a European Union mission now, so we will retract ourselves from the scene. And now that uh, Brexit's upon us, they are deciding to come back. They're realising they need other countries through the Commonwealth. But interestingly, France never did that. But yes, of course, we're very happy. We're very happy the UK is coming back. We're very happy that uh, the Japanese will be setting up an embassy here. You know, the more friends we have, the better. So obviously, Minister, you have a a constituency, and I've I've seen personally how connected you are to that constituency. Um, When when you talk to them, what are some of the issues they raise um, around China's uh, increased presence in, in Vanuatu? I must say that uh, my constituency, which is Port Vila, which is the main city in Vanuatu, there are a lot of concerns in the local community about the presence of Chinese here. It's not so much China as a government, but uh, there is a lot of concern about the extent of the new retail shops being opened, all being controlled by Chinese. Uh, I mean, there's more and more. They're like The number of them is increasing, owned by Chinese, and uh, there's lots of concerns about Chinese labourers being used on construction sites to do jobs that Vanuatu feel they can do. So I think uh, the concern in the general population is a lot greater than the concern at the political level because of the changes in the economic activity 
in the community when there are high levels of unemployment, a lot of people, uh, kids graduating who can't find jobs. And when you see you know, people who you perceive as foreigners having jobs and uh, having businesses and uh, you, you think you're a local and you can't have that access, then obviously it becomes an issue. And once again, I'll, I'll say it's, you know, it's up to our national governments to set rules and uh, enforce rules so that uh, we give opportunities so that we try and reduce this resentment. But I think it's, it's something we've, we've seen, we've learned from obviously the anti-Chinese riots in Honiara, in Papua New Guinea, and we do not want to have that happen here. I mean, Dame Meg, as a Papua New Guinean and also as, as the leader of um, the, the forum, are, are you uh, hearing similar concerns elsewhere in the Pacific? I think there is a, a fear of being overrun, that there will be everybody coming from outside to do these projects and the opportunities for young people. Um, as a Papua New Guinea citizen, my concern is we have about 60% of our population is under the age of 16 and you're producing graduates, several thousand a year from different institutions, and you, you meet all these young people that just cannot get a job, and we have to address this. We've got to provide opportunities for them. And, and on that, uh, is the forum facing similar pressures to take sides, if you like, on, on the One China policy? Uh, the forum does. The secretariat faces pressure. The forum itself, the leaders, conduct themselves the way they want to conduct it. But um, we're the workers, so we, we cop it. <laughs> but we'll get through it, you know. This is part of a transition in terms of uh, defining relationships and having constructive engagement with Pacific Rim countries is an important part of the existence of the region. I think one of the important issues for us is this narrative of a blue Pacific and who we are, we now need to take this narrative further in terms of our engagement strategy, that we engage not others tell us how to engage. That was the Foreign Minister of Vanuatu, Ralph Regenvanu, speaking with the Secretary-General of the Pacific Island Forum, Dame Meg Taylor. So, Graham, I mean, just put it in context for us. How much of what they just said was new? Look, uh, there were some really uh, interesting things that they touched on. Um, for example, Dame McTaylor, for the, the first time anywhere, has admitted that China has been applying pressure to the Pacific Islands Forum to recognise the uh, the One China policy. So she's, uh, I don't think she's admitted that anywhere else. It's definitely been hinted by other people, but uh, this, I believe, is the first time she's uh, she's admitted that. And in terms of what they were saying about the tensions between Pacific Islanders and Chinese, I mean, is there anything that they said that we didn't already know before? No, but it's really interesting, especially to hear Ralph's perspective, because I've visited Ralph on the ground in, in Vanuatu, and his electorate is Port Vila, the largest town in Vanuatu. And it's the one place in the Pacific where you really see a huge ramp up uh, in the number of Chinese migrants uh, to Vanuatu. So to sort of hear a Pacific leader and a Pacific parliamentarian um, expressing in such clear terms what his constituents are feeling, uh, particularly, you know, you're seeing a lot of things online, in, on Facebook, that suggests that there could be violence in Vanuatu against uh, the Chinese, because we've seen this in PNG, we've seen it in the Solomon Islands, and we've seen it in Tonga. It starts online, and then it goes offline, and the consequences can be devastating. I mean, we've seen it before, haven't we? There were those very big riots in Tonga in 2006, and I mean, I think that 
is the issue, isn't it, that's at the back of everybody's minds when they're thinking about violence against Chinese communities in the Pacific? I mean, how, how bad was it? Look, it was it was pretty catastrophic. I mean, you can go onto YouTube uh, and see footage of the riots, and essentially the entire CBD of the capital city of Tonga, Nuku'alofa, was burnt to the ground. Like literally, uh, pretty well everything was burnt to the ground. And and the reason you have all this talk about Tonga being in debt these days is because the damage caused by those riots um, had to somehow be rebuilt, and they were rebuilt ironically enough, with the help of a loan from the Chinese government. And the reason Tonga is so heavily in debt these days and is, is really struggling to um, make its loan repayments or has, has put off its loan repayments is precisely because of these riots targeting Chinese shopkeepers. So it's one of those strange, uh, strange ironies. And I mean, was it mainly economic loss or were there also people killed in the riots? In the case of Tonga, no. Uh, Rights elsewhere in the Pacific, yes, in PNG, there were four people killed. Uh, Solomon Islands, again, it's, it's people, are, uh, they're good Christian folk for the most part, so they generally let the people leave their stall before they ransack it completely and burn it to the ground. So, you know, thou shalt not kill is still fairly strong in the Pacific. Uh, but, yeah, it was complete devastation. These uh, shopkeepers lost uh, all of their stock, all of their livelihood, and often um, the places where they were living as well. So it was a, a pretty well complete economic loss. For the, uh, for the Chinese migrants. You know, here in Tonga, we have so much fun. Don't care about us. You know, that's a kind of life. You know. Here in Tonga, we have so much fun. We are free. You know, we are free now. Don't worry. And, you know, and that was the sound of our participant in the Tongan riots of 2006, as recorded by a Japanese national. To get another perspective on those riots, I'm joined by Deng Hua Zhang, a former Chinese diplomat, now a research fellow with the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs. Deng Hua was posted to the Chinese embassy in Tonga in 2006 when the riots happened. Deng Hua, can you talk us through what happened then, and how did the embassy respond? I still remember at that time, actually, I was driving to, to the city centre, and then I saw in the afternoon, I saw the, the, the heavy smokes rising from the, 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 the ruins in the city center. And when we arrived at the embassy, should be about more than 100 the Chinese small shopkeepers on the island. They flooded into the, the embassy compound for protection. And it's quite understandable because many of those Chinese small shopkeepers, their shops were looted and many of them were, many of the shops were burned down. So and they were very, very shocked and frightened. If my memory is right, I think they should stay there for about around one week. And during the one week, the embassy staff tried to provide food and water to them for the one week. And then I think at the end, the Chinese government, they organized a charter flight from Fiji and then from Fiji to Nukualofa, Tonga, and they picked up this, the, the Chinese citizens stranded in the rice. And, and what was the reaction of the shopkeepers? Did they understand why they'd been targeted during the riots? I mean, obviously the reasons for the riots were quite, quite complicated, but they were very specifically the target of the violence. Um, did they understand why that was? I think there should be two, two main reasons why the riot took place. Why is related to the democratic movement there at that time. And the, this movement was led by the current prime minister, uh, Akhlis Pahiva. And 
the second reason for, I think, for this rise could be related to the growing Asian shopkeepers or their small business in Tonga. It is difficult for those local business to compete with the arriving the Asian shopkeepers from China or from the other Asian countries. And, you know, for these Asian migrants working in Tonga, they are very, very hardworking, but of course, on some times, I think there are some male practices by them. Thanks very much. Thank you. Graham, have we have we ever heard from a Chinese diplomat before describing what, what it was like to be on the other side of these riots? No, certainly not. Uh, it's something the Chinese government is is not at all keen to uh, keen to talk about. And uh, you know, Donghua is uh, taking quite a risk coming on air here. He's not uh, viewed very positively by the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They uh, tend to call him a deserter. Uh, so yes, it is a, a, a very unique uh, perspective that we've never heard from before. Moving from 2006 to now, how relevant do you think that type of experience is for the Chinese presence in the Pacific? Look, it's it's incredibly relevant because the tensions that sparked the riots in 2006 are not only still there, they're, they're heightened because you've had more Chinese migrants. Uh, you have an increased presence of Chinese shopkeepers uh, in pretty well every Pacific Island country. Um, and you have uh, much larger populations so that the tensions on the ground are, are even higher than they were back in 2006. And it's an incredible challenge for every Chinese embassy to try and manage to make sure that their citizens are not, um, you know, quite literally um, put to the sword. That was the sound of Australian Federal Police taking evasive action during the Solomon Islands riots of 2006. New migrants from Guangdong province were targeted, and all of Honiara's Chinatown was burnt to the ground. To dig into the question of why these riots happen, I'm joined by Patrick Matbob of Divine Word University in Medang province, Papua New Guinea, and fisheries expert Transform Akora from the Solomon Islands. Both are landowners who live in the villages. Patrick, given Chinese shopkeepers have run the retail sector in the Pacific for a long time, going back to the early 1900s, why is there a problem with these new arrivals? Today, the situation in uh, places like Medang and elsewhere in PNG, it's not, it's not the law and order situation has gone bad. Uh, there's a lot of uh, people uh, stealing from shops. Uh, it's become difficult not only for the Chinese, but from, for any shop owner, whether it's the small trade store in the village or a big supermarket in the town, you know, uh, make sure that no one, you know, steals your goods. The Chinese, they own a lot of shops. They have to deal with this now. And that's why it's become a problem. And they have to provide the security and the security guards, uh, you know, mon- monitoring and petting down the customers as they walk down. They frisk them. And uh, customers put their hands up as if they're surrender- surrendering. And, uh, yeah. So even then, a lot of these things are actually against the law. You can 
cannot, you know, lay uh, hands on another person without their, you know, consent. But uh, it's allowed to happen. It's allowed to happen in most shops, and and this is the sort of things that creating friction against, uh, you know, the Chinese. So, transform. What have been your experiences um, out in New Georgia in the Solomon Islands? I think I'd like to, you know, qualify my my observation in that there are some very good good um, Chinese people, shop owners who have a good relationship with the people, they, they speak nicely to them. They are an important part of the of the economy and, and the service sector industry. They're creating employment, they're providing jobs, but um, I think the, the sense of resentment can also come in by the by some of the behavior that they have, particularly the, the newer ones, uh, the, you know, the behavior that they display and the lack of respect that they have for, you know, for Solomon Islanders, for the culture. You know, I think they do have a condescension attitude. I mean, I'm sure they're, they're looking down on us, but they're not there to, to really develop the, the country. They're economic rent seekers. So the, the, the real challenge then becomes one for, for the government, for the Solomon Islands government to ensure that, you know, there are some affirmative actions in place, there's some limits in place. The other thing I think in Solomon Islands is that they dominate the whole retail sector, the importation of goods, uh, the distribution of goods. So they have almost 100% monopoly uh, of the of the distribution and the importation. And, and so it's very, very hard to to break break that down and break that up. The other, the other resentment that people have generally is that because the operation uh, modus operandi is to bribe, they, they bribe um, officers. And that's why I think the quality of our government and governance is, 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 is we're suffering from that because we're, su- we're really suffering. I don't think they're complying with the, with the planning laws and so they're bribing the town council, the city council officials. and So it's just a, it's just a generally corrosive effect. But yeah, the cultural issues that, that Patrick has raised is, you know, I, I really get annoyed when I see the Chinese sitting on top of them, you know, I, and then we call them master. And I, I just like, to me, it's just so condescending. <laughs> Patrick? And Transform, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Patrick Matbob um, from Divine Word University in Papua New Guinea and Transform Akora, a fisheries expert from Solomon Islands. So, Graham, there we heard a lot from these Pacific Islanders talking also about how they needed to get their houses in order in order to deal with this uh, rampant corruption. I mean, do you think that that's something that is going to happen or are there just too many loopholes? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the biggest problems that that these fairly small countries face is to deal with this huge wave of investors and uh, potentially aid projects in the case of Solomon Islands if they do switch from Taiwan to China. Um, They need a whole government bureaucracy that's properly staffed, properly resourced. And in many cases, you just can't see that happening. So the potential for corruption is there. It's existing on the ground. The forestry industry in particular in Solomon Islands is just an absolute tragedy. Um, logs being ripped out at, at completely unsustainable rates. So, you know, how do they get the house in order when they have such limited resources to govern their own country? It's a real problem. And when I talked to Transform later, he said originally he'd been in favour of, of Taiwan um, leaving and China coming in, but he'd lately come to the opinion that essentially 
the Solomon Islands didn't have the capacity to um, to have China in there. That was just too tempting or too juicy a stake for the government to leave alone and uh, it would end up in, in massive corruption. So in a case, even though he didn't like what the Taiwanese were doing with aid, he was more worried about what the Chinese might do um, once they had a, you know, a fresh line of projects for uh, Solomon Island government ministers to get tucked into. But it does seem to be the case that many of the Pacific islands that already have relationships with China um, you know, they're already seeing vast influxes of Chinese cash and there, there is not, um, there are a lot of checks and balances. Yeah, and that's, you know, one of the one of the ongoing problems you get, not just in the Pacific, but, you know, well beyond in Africa and other places is, you know, how do you cope with this huge volume of investment and migration? I mean, Vanuatu, um, which is showing signs of an anti-Chinese riot sometime in the future, the number of migrants there are barely enough to fill a village back in China. You know, it's you've had a spike of, say, 3,000 new migrants, which, you know, in China terms is something that they wouldn't even notice. Um, but the impact on the ground in, in in a small capital city um, like Port Vila is is enormous and in, incredibly visible. So, uh, you know, the geopolitics are, are, are almost playing out without the Chinese central state having any idea of what's happening. Looking forward, what do you think the next kind of geopolitical steps to look for will be? You know, we see headline after headline about possible uh, Chinese military bases here, there and everywhere. Is there any sign that any is actually going to happen or is that just something to watch for? Look, I don't think that's going to happen in the short term. And, and the report that was of a, of a base in Vanuatu has, has been roundly denied by all sides, uh, including, it seems, the Australian side eventually. That was the Luganville one, right? The Lugan, yes, the Luganville wharf um, was, uh, I think, you know, eventually hosed down. But in sort of stepping back from it, people were saying, well, just because it's not going to happen here doesn't mean it might not happen elsewhere in the future. And there are many more likely candidates throughout the Pacific, countries um, that are much closer to uh, China, countries that are not non-aligned, um, like Vanuatu, and countries that have better ports, to be frank, you know, much longer wharves, much deeper harbours. Um, they're, they're definitely there. And if China is looking for something that might be a full-blown naval base, it might be something to repair their ships, it might be something to help in space tracking, which, you know, as we know from previous episodes, now has warfare applications. Uh, so it could be something like this, and it may happen in the next five to 10 years, um, but probably not next week. And I mean, we have seen it suddenly, as you mentioned, this huge spike of interest in other countries in the Pacific. And we're seeing a sort of parade of Australian officials quickly marching to the Pacific to try and rekindle interest. Do you think it's too late? Do you think the Chinese influence is already so well entrenched that all these other countries like Australia, New Zealand and Great Britain have basically missed the boat there? Well, I think Britain's Britain's kind of a separate case because uh, a lot of people are very kind of, you know, looking askance at what Britain is doing because they left and they left pretty well, we thought, for good from the Pacific and now they're suddenly back. Uh, in the case of Australia and New Zealand, I think there are, you know, there are, are, are deeper ties um, that China as yet has not managed to displace. Um, and there are barriers as well around language and around culture. Um, you know, you, you still, at the end of the day, have 
a one-party state um, that is against religion, and that doesn't necessarily go down terribly well uh, in one of the most Christian parts of the world. So there are real barriers to China making any further gains. But you know, there's no denying that the, literally the New Zealanders and the Australians have been tripping over each other to suddenly make these state visits because the realisation they've had is this kind of red carpet diplomacy that China's been doing is cheap and it works. So it, at least in terms of getting the elites of these countries on side. Uh, and so they're looking at each other and going, gosh, why haven't we uh, been doing this? And you know, it's, it's a relatively simple thing to do. And it's something that's really appreciated in the Pacific. So uh, what, what to look for going forward in the next kind of year or two? Are there, are there signs that we should be looking for? Look, I think the obvious thing to look at is is whether uh, China goes full bore in trying to win back um, some of Taiwan's allies in the Pacific and, and the kind of pressuring that Dame Meg was talking about uh, of the of the Pacific Islands Forum indicates that they're getting serious because, you know, six out of 17 of Taiwan's remaining allies are in the Pacific. Uh, and, you know, a, a lot of them are, I think, open to a, a large influx of aid dollars. So that could happen definitely in the next couple of years. Solomon Islands looks pretty likely to uh, to go across, um, but there are some countries that will never switch. I think, such as um, you know, the tiny country of Nauru. Uh, which was desperately short of friends and literally, you know, kind of only had uh, Taiwan and Australia there in its corner when it was in desperate straits. So that kind of ally, I think, um, China is going to struggle to shift. Interesting. Something to watch. We ran a competition last month asking listeners for the dish they'd most like to see disappear from the rich landscape of Chinese cuisine. It was surprisingly, alarmingly popular, much more than we had intended, and frankly, looking at the pictures you all sent in was a little bit traumatic. Louisa has her own deep-seated trauma around sea cucumbers, and this has been added to by our listeners. Now, I should stress that we love Chinese food. We spend most of our nights out eating Chinese food. We have nothing against Chinese food. That said, the dishes which won are pretty stomach-churning. We really don't want to see any of them disappear. We are massive fans of Chinese food and especially of that kind of economy and foresight that makes use of every kind of food part, including those you never imagined might be eaten. Or never thought should be eaten. (laughs) Now, Louisa... Who wins first prize? Oh, we have three prizes. So we have chosen Matthew Kern for his genuinely alarming nomination of Live Scorpions Drowned in Baiju. He says he got suckered into eating these guys outside of Jiaozuo, Henan. They're unfortunately chewy, like Baiju-flavoured bubblegum. Second prize, and I'm only announcing this one because Louisa refuses to say penis on air. (laughs) Stargazer says the dish has to be bull's penis. I challenge you to have a look. You were meant to say that. No, no, I'm not, but it's the truth. (laughs) And our final prize goes to Marina Rajak for sandworms. And she mentioned she had them at dinner with the party secretary of Nanning, despite telling the translator that they don't eat such things in Germany. Uh, Apparently, sandworms, should you ever want to know what they taste like, they taste like shells you collect on the beach and the way that they smell the day after. Yuck. And we also have a couple of honorary mentions who will also be receiving Little Red Podcast mugs. First up, we have Dave Yin and Ken Mallett, who sent us in pork floss on bread. Truly, truly 
evil dish. Also, Max Duncan for your evil sausage. Uh, smells sweet and wrong, just awful. I'm totally in agreement there. And I think we should give a special mention to Chris Buckley's sheep head. When I first saw it, I wondered if the New York Times' famous bureau dog, Tiny, had come to a nasty end. And before our mugs get set out of the mail, I encourage all of you to have a look on our Facebook page to see just how traumatic this competition was. Thank you all for taking part. <laughs> that's it from Vanuatu. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and please leave us a review on iTunes to help the algorithm help people to find us. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. Our editor is Andy Hazel. Background research is by Julia Bergen. Our theme tune is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.